You're listening to the She Lift Project podcast, a show dedicated to helping women achieve higher levels of success in the workplace. No matter where you are in your career, we want to help you grow. Now here's your host, Cynthia Kirkpatrick, a CPA, CFP, and Senior Financial Advisor at Mineta Group. Hello and welcome to another episode of the She Lift Project podcast. I'm Cynthia Kirkpatrick and I'm happy you could join us. Today we have another special guest and one of my closest friends and female inspirations, Dr. Beth Russell. Beth worked the typical jobs in her youth before embarking on an accidental career in higher education, which lasted 36 years. So much for accidental. She has a master's degree in marketing and a PhD in philosophy. She retired with distinction and holds the title of Administrator Emeritus at Webster University. With such a long career in higher education, in addition to all outside projects she's been involved in, she has seen it all. Her perspective might surprise you, and I have no doubt it will entertain you. So welcome, Beth. Thank you very much. So we talked about uh, a, a wide variety of things that you've accomplished, but recently, relatively recently, you retired. So can you talk about what you were doing before you stepped away? Sure. I was working for Webster University and also taking care of my mom, who was in the latter part of her life. And I felt that I really needed to continue working, even though I was starting to talk about, think about, move toward retirement. But to be quite honest, for those of us who have had older parents and you have them in a, in a facility, you worry about the money. And mom's money was going very quickly, and I was basically relying on my salary to become that secondary in income if it had to become uh, what we needed for her to stay safe and to be happy in the room that she had. So um, unfortunately, when she did pass, it was during COVID, and we ran the numbers and realized it was probably a good time to retire. It was always our lifetime goal to retire early. I can tell you many stories about my beloved reinvesting money. Every raise he would get would go right into retirement. And I would every year say, oh, honey, couldn't I just have that extra $100 for groceries or you know, whatever we needed at the time. But the sacrifice at that moment became the reward today because now we're both retired early. We get to have fun. We get to spend that money that we work so hard to save. And we will definitely get into the fun that you're having now. But um, so at Webster University, there for 30 plus some odd years, I mean, that has to be somewhat abnormal. In today's world, yes. Um, and what's really abnormal is I was not that girl who grew up and said, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an astronaut. I was just kind of an organic, free-flowing, whatever happens, I'm going to try it type of person. And yes, I was working retail when I got married. I decided I needed to get a nine-to-five job because I wanted to be at home at the same time my husband was at home. And thank you, Mom. Here we go again. She was working for Webster and said, hey, there's this job. Why don't you apply for it? Well, that became not only my accidental career, but my career of second choice. And when I say of second choice, I don't know why, but at Webster, every single career move I've had, I was always the second choice. So uh, first job, phone call, sorry, you didn't get the job. 
okay, thanks, I'll just go on two weeks later. Oh, hey, the person who got the job just got promoted. Do you want it? And of course, I said yes, because I was still looking for something a little more stable. But then that kind of became a theme for my whole career at Webster. And many years later, I was up for an AVP job. And I remember saying, okay, I'll give it a try. I applied for it. I was told no, whatever. And then I get a phone call from the vice president who says, hey, I want to take you to lunch. Okay, that's unusual. But by this point, I was in the midst of opening a new campus. I thought maybe he just wanted an update. And halfway through my lunch, he said, I'm sorry, I know I should have hired you first. And of course, needless to say, I almost choked on my lunch at that point. And he said, but I'd like to offer you the job. So what I learned from all of these things was to take that opportunity as a plus, and then also just work a little extra hard to prove to them that I was the right choice first. Wow, that's uh, good information, you know, thinking about don't give up, you know, the first time you hear no or whatnot, don't you don't give up. So what do you think? Why were you able to not give up, throw in the towel, leave, go somewhere else? I would be remiss if I didn't say I tried to go somewhere else. Um, I did apply for other jobs. What was amazing to me, though, was they would offer me the same amount of money, but the drive was an hour and a half away from my home. And I'd say, well, how is that a benefit to me if I have to make the same amount of money but then pay more money for gas and my time and the wear and tear of my car? So I kind of felt maybe, I don't want to say there was a higher power that kept me at Webster, but sometimes I felt that my I was chosen to be at Webster for whatever reason. Uh, many people often say that, you know, I love Webster, and I would say, yes, I do. And I had a boss who said, oh, it's tattooed all over your forehead, you love Webster. And I said, no, sir, it's tattooed on my heart. Because I really believed in the product, I believed in the place, and there was just something special about it. And I think that's why I was able to gracefully hear the no every single time. And in one other example, I was told no. There was a lot of kerfluffle with the staff. They were upset. They wanted me to be the boss. And I remember saying to them, hey, it's okay. We got a great person coming in who's going to run our center. We're going to really love him. He's a great guy. Let's get behind him. Let's really support him and do really good things together. And then it was a Friday. It was a clean day. I was wearing my Webster t-shirt, my Birkenstocks, my jeans. And I got a phone call from the vice president. Hey, come on over. I want to talk to you different vice president. And I said, well, um, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm, I'm really not dressed appropriately. And she said, I don't care. Come on over and talk to me. And she offered me a, a promotion. But in the same sentence, she said, and I was so impressed at how gracefully you took the no and how hard you worked to get the staff behind the new director that I knew at that point I had to find a job for you and find a promotion for you. Wow. I mean, that's a great story. I think even for you to repeat that, but uh, especially today, it's so easy to fall victim and blame others and go into that negative path. Yet you were able to, like you said, be graceful about, you know, what others might think of as losing um, and not only steer yourself the right way, but get others behind you to steer. I mean, what do you think it is that you can be that way. 
probably part of just who I am as a person. I tend to be more optimistic than pessimistic. And I always want to go into any situation and try and improve the situation. And I always know that if I'm in a better mood or if I'm working harder, that tends to emulate to the other people. Uh, Yes, there are always negative people on the job, but I find that if you talk to them, get to understand the root of what is causing their concern, you can usually talk them up and talk them out of where they're at in that particular situation. It could be, you know, the kids were crabby that day, or, you know, they were tired, or they weren't feeling good, or perhaps this wasn't the career choice that they should have made. So I always tried to be that person who could go in and say, look, yeah, my career choice wasn't mine either. I decided to take an organic path so that I wouldn't put so many heavy expectations on it. I would approach it as, yes, it was a J-O-B, but it was something that I was going to put my passion into so that at the end of the day when I went home, I was proud of the work that I provided to my employer that day. Do you think any of that started in your your youth? Because you didn't grow up in St. Louis. No, um, I didn't. We did move to Detroit when I was very young, so I don't remember the trauma at that point. Um, I'll get to that on the backside. But in Detroit, uh, I was that child who was the second child, but there's a nine-year difference between my brother and me. So some people will say that he had a different set of parents than I did, because nine years is a long time. So by the time I was growing up, we were doing ice shows, and my mom and dad founded a community theater, and my mom started working for the Parks and Recreation Department. My dad was a superintendent of accountancy and control at Monsanto. But they were in their 50s. They were starting to redevelop their interests and go out and do things. So my childhood was all about puppet shows and theater and dancing and singing. And, um, of course, ice shows. When you're in Detroit, you have to do all ice sports. But I would say that there was a lot of happiness Uh, My parents took disco lessons. I mean, this tells you kind of where they were in their life. And they certainly knew how to throw a party. And uh, they were just really enjoying their life. And I got to ride that train. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, they modeled a lot of things for you. Your mom out there doing things, building things. And they also weren't afraid to try different things. As you mentioned, a lot of them maybe being in the arts because, uh, as you said, your career was somewhat of an accident. You Didn't you want to go into theater or the arts? Oh, yes. <laughs> and there, there's that story, too. And we can tell by you on the microphone, we can definitely tell that you have that, uh, you know, that, that way about delivering a line. Yes. Uh, well, uh, let's just say when we moved back to Missouri, my dad was transferred. That was the trauma. Uh, we moved back between my sophomore and junior year in high school. And needless to say, I was leaving everything that I knew at that point, including a boyfriend. And uh, then to just add insult to injury, we were moving back in June. I needed to go to school somewhere. My mom pulled the I went to Narinx Hall card, and they got me into Narinx. So I went from a co-ed school to an all-girls school. And I thought, well, if there isn't a lesson there, because it was traumatic, then I was just thrown into a foreign environment that I didn't know. But again, I kind of tapped into the roots of just have fun. Just go in there, be yourself, enjoy it. 
and you're going to be fine. And so, yeah, I continued doing theater and dancing. I sang at church. And then I went to audition at Webster. And this is the pre-employee Webster, obviously. Uh, I tried out for the musical theater program, and I was told no. So my second choice was vocal performance. And that was my undergraduate degree. I thought, that's what I'm going to do for my life. I'll be singing. I'll be dancing. I'll be doing all these things. And then I realized, eh, that's okay. It's a part of who I am. But it doesn't have to be the driving force of who I am. And then by that point, got my job at Webster, started doing a master's in marketing of all things. And then eventually my mentor kind of kicked me and said, you need to go get a PhD if you're going to stay in higher education. So I always say, I can sing to you and entertain you. If that's not good, I'll market it and spin it. And then I've got the PhD. I can at least educate you about how to just have fun. That's pretty, that's pretty good. You mentioned a, a mentor, an advisor who said that you need to get your, your PhD. Did you have people along the way? I would say I had both types. I had the one who was demotivating, mm. and then I had those who were motivating. And both of them taught me a lot about how to be a good manager. Again, it goes back to, yes, sometimes you have to go in and say, people, people, we got to get this done. This is exactly what you have to do. But I always found that if we could talk about it, plan it together, and really become a team behind what we were doing, it certainly made the efforts a lot easier. Um, goes back to the word of fun. I know that sounds um, trite to say over and over again, but moving a campus as an example, I was able to at least say, all right, it's Friday, let's go have our five-minute dance party and get out all our anxieties, or just scream at the top of our lungs, thank God security knew we did this every Friday at 9 a.m., but we would just vent and just get the whole week out, and then by Monday, we were back to planning, back to figuring out how to make things easier for all of us. You said a lot of good things there, but I also don't want to skirt over the fact that you slyly said, and we moved to campus. Yeah, um, one of my many, many jobs at Webster, I was made the director of the downtown campus. At that point, we were in the Lammert building, which uh, is a very interesting story. It's the old furniture building, but the entire building is built on a slant. So, um, you know, I always used to joke that I'd have to walk backwards so I didn't fall over um, just because you had to level the floor, so to speak. But the whole idea of that building was, think about it, they didn't really have the technology we have today. So in order to move furniture, they would just use gravity to move it down to the delivery trucks. And I was told, all right, you're going to go into this campus, and we may or may not be moving to the old post office. And it was a huge project. There was a lot of discussion. And after a couple of years, the answer was, yes, we are definitely moving to the old post office. So I moved from this you know, 50,000 square foot building to what was supposed to be 100,000 square foot. We eventually tapered that back quite a bit because we felt that we didn't need the room. But when you think about the fact that at that point in time in St. Louis, it was 2005, there was a lot of political maneuvering. You know, you had to have the money people on board. We had to have the government offices on board. So it was not unusual for me to get a phone call and say, on Friday, we need you to put together a tour and lunch for 
and then it was a company name. It was a government entity. I never really knew who was going to show up at that lunch until that Friday. And then we would have a lovely lunch and walk over to the old post office, all of us with our hard hats, walking through this building that's in construction. And it was one of those interesting times where I found myself going from, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not the person in charge, but I really need and then eventually I got to know everyone in the building. So this kind of goes back to get to know the people uh, because I would point things out that were wrong about the construction. Uh, this sounds really ridiculous, but one of the classics was it was um, three guys, they were working in the restrooms and they decided to have the doors swing in. And when you think about it, they were swinging right into the facility. And so you really, unless you want to jump over the toilet. Um, it was really uncomfortable. And I, I walked in, I said, um, the hinges can go on the other side, can't we have them just swing out? And they were like, well, I hadn't thought about that. And so that was just a classic example of something that they wouldn't think about. But I was able to say, I think this needs to be done. But I didn't have to go to a boss, I didn't have to run it up the chain, I just pointed it out. And they thought that was a good suggestion. And I made that change just with a phone or with a conversation. So it was maybe part you, part the organization. Sounds like that you weren't afraid to speak up, to bring up ideas, but you were also in, a, in an environment, a culture where that was allowed and or encouraged? Um, I don't know that it was <laughs> allowed or encouraged. Maybe it was better to be forgiven. Um, but I just felt like I got to know these, these guys because I was in there all the time giving tours and I would make these observations. And they were pretty cool about saying, yeah, you know, you're right. Maybe we should go ahead and open that duck in that room because that's where your bookstore is going to be so that the person working will have heating and cooling. You know, it's just it's a silly thing, but we were using an old utility closet, and someone just didn't think about it until I pointed it out. So, like I said, there, there's tons of these examples of, of just common sense things that nobody else thought about. And so I was lucky that I was able to go in and kind of affect some change in that respect. And it sounds like certainly the move happened. Everything you did paid off. What happened from there? Did you... Did they see the Dr. Beth in her glory? Uh, I would say yes. That was probably one of my many um, happy moments. Uh, first of all, I was going downtown. It was something totally outside of my box. Um, downtown in 2002 was not what it is today. So uh, you, you, people could talk about safety and security, but at that point, we didn't even have the guides downtown. We didn't have the clean teams downtown. Everything was still in process, still a lot of abandoned buildings. So you were walking around, kind of looking around, if that's the way to put it. And so already I was feeling emboldened because it was just this whole different world to me. I got away from being at the main campus and being insulated by what was happening there. And at that point, I was also running our South County campus. So I was running between two campuses, trying to get students, trying to get faculty, and really working hard to increase our enrollments. Because when I got down there, there were maybe 150 students. By the time I left, we had over 800. Wow. And that was um, a lot of, you know, 
boots on the ground, so to speak. I would uh, go to the police stations five times a year to meet with the officers. They uh, had an opportunity that when they got out of the academy, they instantly got 27 hours of credit. And I would just talk to him and say, one class, guys, you need one class, and that will qualify you for a promotion. So I had a great sales pitch, right? Uh, Marketing, here we go. Yeah, and so those were the kinds of things that I would do. Um, (laughs) I, I was on the loft tours. I made a deal with our marketing guy, and I said, hey, could I get some plastic bags that say Webster? Because I noticed every time people were on a loft tour, they were picking up materials, but they had nothing to put them in. So I have tons of pictures of these bright bags. They were all neon colored with Webster on the side and people are walking up and down the street with Webster. Uh, I did movie nights downtown in Keener Plaza. It was just whatever I had to do, I did to make my face be known as the face of Webster University. I'm hearing, you know, think outside the box, uh, almost promote yourself, advocate yourself, but in a a positive way because you're making a difference you're doing things back to what you said of do the work work extra hard prove that you deserve it and also get the respect and the trust of the people that you're working with uh, going back to the marketing example um, i had a great relationship with the director of marketing but there was a budget and i would say okay well um you know thanks for the swag pens, squeezy balls, uh, bags, whatever they wanted to send us that year. It was never anything we decided on, they would send. But then I would say, well, what if I go ahead and ask you for fans for movie nights, for example, their paper products? What if I pay for half of it out of my budget and then you pay for the other half? Or can I go ahead and be trusted with the logo? Because at that point, the logo was something you passed along physically. It was not something that was on the computer. And I would go ahead and do flyers and I would do newsletters, anything that I could to get the word out about what we were doing downtown and why it was an exciting place to be and why you would be safe and get your education at the same time. And it sounds like to me, what you, everything you're talking about right now is passion. Mm-hmm. You talked about no matter what you were doing, you were going to go, you were going to show and prove passion mm-hmm. um, and leading others almost to experience what you're experiencing in the passion. And the passion came at a cost. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say I didn't have bad days. I did. But my goal was always to never let anyone see if I was having a bad day. That's where my poor husband would get the abuse when I got home at night because I'd just vent and get frustrated. And But that's also something that's important in life whether it's a spouse or a friend or a parent, someone that you can reach out to who can just let you vent for a few minutes and go, yeah, you're right, you had a bad day, tomorrow's a new day. And then you start over again. Yeah, it's funny, I, 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 I will often do that on a drive home with the, the good old husband. And sometimes I feel bad, like, okay, I should be positive about everything and anything all the time. But I also feel so much better when I can get it out and but then i also feel bad that i'm having him here just the the grumbling mm-hmm. uh so i struggle with the be positive all the time yeah you're lucky and wow it's really great to have that person just who won't judge you who doesn't have to even necessarily fix it can just listen and you know after a while we would set boundaries um for example 
you know, happy hour is a, a lovely thing in our house because that was the hour. That's when you came home and he grumbled about his job and I grumbled about my job. And then once that hour was over, it was done. I was like, nope, there's other things to talk about in life. We need to move on because it can become so negative that you can't really get out of that cycle. And you don't want to come home and talk about the same thing over and over again. And so to find something else, whether, you know, it's a dog or, you know, your favorite TV show or let's go for a walk or cooking, whatever you had to do, um, that's what we would do. And I think setting those boundaries was healthy. Otherwise, it just goes all the way to bedtime. And then you wake up in a bad mood because all you did was talk about the negativity of the day. But I think you're you're on a, something there as to it, it's also healthy to get it out because if you bottle it up, then it's going to come out in other ways. As you said, maybe there's people who had you know an issue with their kids or an issue with this or that. And if you bottled up for too long, that's not good either. No, because it can affect you not only mentally, but physically. Uh, panic attacks, or you, you start to get anxious, or you, you just don't want to go to the office because you feel like you just can't deal with it that day. But if you can talk about it and kind of reset your your gauges and go, all right, that was yesterday, today's today. So let's just deal with what we're going to do with today. But it also sounds like in order to get to that point, you had a good support person at home, and then also talking about it saying, okay, here's what we need. But we're also going to put that boundary and, and set that expectation that it, it goes no further than here. Yes. So again, I think being willing to talk about what you need, what's troubling you with somebody you can trust, but also somebody who is going to help you brain yourself in. Yeah, maybe. And it, it, you know, some people do have colleagues that they can do that with. Um, some people have best friends. Some people have spouses. Again, it just really depends what works for you. But I would say my only advice is, yes, set some boundaries because life is too short and we don't want to be negative. I mean, there's too much negativity in the world, especially right now. And we don't need that. Um, you know, shut it off. Put your phone down. You know, turn off your computer. Take a mental break. It works. Yeah, and find out. What, you mentioned a couple of things. I, I know happy hour in your yes. house. I know there's even a song and a dance uh, with the fur baby at home. Yes. But it's everybody finding their own release, whether it's walking the dog, whether it's I like to run every morning, get outside. So finding and asking for, I think for a long time with my family, my husband, I was afraid to ask and say, no, I need 20 minutes to go. You know, everybody else in my house could do that and ask for it. But I felt guilty saying I need something. And, and also the guilt of it's okay not to have a perfect day or have a perfect mindset. Because whatever social media has you believe or nobody's perfect. So live in that, I don't know, imperfectness, but set the boundary and come back to gratefulness and positivity. Well, and remember, too, that we live in a society where we're nurturers. And so that's why we tend to give ourselves until we don't have anything left to give. And so it's important, as you say, find that 20 minutes, whether it's shutting off all your technology, you know, sitting outside and listening to the birds sing, uh, going for a walk, whatever works is very powerful for us as women to make sure that we can continue to keep giving as long as we're recharged and energetic and ready to give more. 
Right. Kind of like they say on the airplanes, put your mask on first before you have to take care of yourself so that you can give. And I like that we brought it back to this point because I do think there are certain challenges, whether it's societal, professional, in our own minds, uh, or something we've been ingrained from a very young age that we have to deal with in the professional world. And, and something you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you had leaders that were motivating and demotivating and just knowing the tenure and the time of your career. I mean, what becoming vice president at Webster, a major university, uh, accomplishing all that you accomplished, I have to imagine there were some challenges along the way. Definitely some challenges. Um, probably back to the point of the demotivating leadership. Uh, I would say that there were supervisors that I had who would let me just soar. And then there were those who I really felt that they were intimidated or concerned that I wanted their job because I had gone on this career path at Webster. And I always started off every meeting with a new supervisor saying, look, yes, I love Webster. It was my passion, is my passion, still is. I, I still care about it deeply. But I would always tell that person, I am here to be a partner for you. I want you to look good. I want you to succeed. Because if you succeed, I succeed. And we're all going to have a better day for it. And I almost hate to say it, but I found that whenever I had female supervisors, with the exception of two, I've had a lot of supervisors. But it seemed like most of the female supervisors were the hardest ones to work for. Because either they didn't want to give me the information I needed, or they didn't want to trust me with a project that might outshine them. And so I was all that was a huge challenge for me, because I felt my talents were not being utilized. And I would sit at my desk and go, what did I do wrong? Why can't I be put in charge of this project? I know I can do it. I know I can do it well. Or why did you give me this project to work on? Because you know it's not my strong suit. Uh, we, we did leadership um, tests, and I, I'm very empathetic. I'm very communicative, and I am a get-it-done girl. But don't put me on budgets and visions and strategy because that's just not who I am. Remember that part about being organic, like let it happen when it happens? That's who that doesn't I am. work with budgets. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, yes, I can look at a spreadsheet. Yes, I can figure out enrollments versus budget. I could do all of that. But did I love it? Mm -mm, not my strong suit. It just, which is ironic. Yes, I'm a daughter of an accountant and I'm run the other way um, because I was more interested in being that person who is out front talking, trying to get things done and making things happen. What do you do in those situations? Like, how, how did you overcome that, adapt? Did you wait it out? I would say that in the first couple examples, um, you know, without going through a blow-by-blow blow of my career, I, I waited it out. And uh, toward the end of my career, I made the decision to retire. I, I realized that where I was at at that time, I was not part of the forward movement of what was happening next. And it was okay. I mean, by that point, I was ready to retire. So I don't want to say I was forced out. That's not what I'm trying to say at all. I just felt like I didn't fit into the model. I, I wasn't going to be able to figure out a way to get around that obstacle. 
And if I really wanted to do something that was going to allow me to soar again, it was time for me to make a change. We talked about some that were demotivating. What were those, you mentioned the ones that were really motivating to you, they let you soar? Yeah. Um, One example uh, is a, a lovely woman who I started working for, and she was one of those people who was very motivating. At that time at Webster, we were doing all these communications and team building classes. And I remember before I even started working for her, she had her team write up kudo cards. And she knew I was working on my doctorate at the time. And so I got a kudo card from her team saying how proud they were of me and how exciting it was that I was going to improve myself through higher education. Then she became my boss about a year, year and a half later. And she was that person who, she was tough, don't get me wrong. I mean, woo, you, you didn't want to have your annual review with her because you'd like, wow, I thought I was perfect. And she'd always find something. But her point was that, well, I have to find something because nobody's perfect. And if I can't keep you motivated to keep trying to improve yourself, you're going to be stuck in the job you have. And at that time, I was director of graduate admissions. It was a great job, but it was very rote. I mean, you just put in the applications, accept, deny. Put in the application, accept, deny. I mean, it was a a repetitive process. So she talked to me, and she's like, you need to teach. You need to be an advisor. And I kept saying, why? And she said, well, if you want to go higher in higher education and get the big job, you need to have that academic experience, the operational experience, as well as the skill sets you've already developed. And so I went and started becoming an advisor, thrown into the deep end, like, hi, how you doing? Um, I'm my first day advising, Um, even though I knew the programs, but I eventually got comfortable. And then she talked to the chair of the business department and said, I want her to teach. And the chair said, okay, but she has to take the four prerequisites to the MBA program before I will allow her to teach. So I took four classes and it, it was one of those where I was trying to be very quiet, like, oh, I don't work for the university, Shh, you know, because other students get anxious if they hear there's an employee in the classroom. And so, uh, but it turned out to be a great experience. I learned a lot. Uh, probably should have kept going and finished the MBA, but by that point, I was on my doctorate, so I was good. Yeah, you have, you have quite a, a bit of accomplishments. No one will take anything away from you. So it sounds like she was a very good mentor. Any others that stand out to you along the way? Yeah. um, Back to her one more moment, though, is she, we talked earlier about, yes, I did look for other positions, and she heard. And um, and it wasn't that I didn't tell her, because I, I made the phone call when I had a job that I was going for, and she said, well, I kind of got the feeling you were looking to go somewhere else. And I said, well, I just, I feel like it's time. And she said, no, you have to stay. I'm going to get you another job. And that's when the director job for downtown opened up. Again, second choice. I'm not mad about that, but I did get it. And because of her, she really, really pushed me. Um, I talked about the gentleman who pushed me to get my PhD. He was a great mentor. And he had a lot of other challenges. And, um, you know, he was very high in higher education, but at that time, he couldn't be his true self because that was not acceptable. Mm. And so he was dealing with personal issues in a professional environment. 
but he could still just break it down and say, all right, you know, we're both in a minority, but I'm going to help you if you help me. And so we became good partners in making sure that we worked on projects together that would make both of us shine. And he's the one that basically new to the job. And I was proofreading reports. And he said, I want you to go to Charleston. I want you to go to the advisor summit. I want you to take notes for me because he couldn't go. I, I was in my early 20s. I, I, I was shocked. I was like, you want me to go to Charleston on a plane? What? And, and be your ears and your eyes. And he trusted me to do that. And it really went miles for me in terms of my self-confidence, my ability to communicate with the leadership, and kind of tell them what I liked and what I didn't like about the job. And that was a heady time when you know, the enrollments were high and we were doing a lot of great things, but I was seeing a lot of movement in my career. So there was a lot of places I wanted to go, but I had this thought. Two great mentors who really saw something in you, believed in you, and they were going to push you and guide you in ways that would exponentially help your career. What is it about you or why do you think that they poured so much into you? I think part of it was I showed up. I was always on time. You know, I always was willing to stay late. I very seldom used a sick day. Uh, It's kind of sad to say I had so many sick days when I retired. I had over a year's worth of sick days. So that kind of tells you I was not calling it in. And I would always be communicative with them. I would make sure that they understood what I was working on. And usually, I hate to say it, once I stopped working for them, that's when I would get the phone call of, oh, gosh, why did I let you go? Or why did you get promoted? I need you back on our team. And that's when you realize you made a difference for them, too. That's great. I mean, you know, and I've been taking a lot of notes and things at the end when we recap. But like you said, show up always putting in the time, working hard, communication, 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 helping them be better in their career and their job. Um, and kind of you get you get what you put out there. Well, and again, I don't want to say it's generational because every generation has its stars. But I was definitely raised in the um, quote, put on your big girl panties and deal with it, unquote. And so that's why I would work so hard. And quite frankly, I don't like to be bored. So if I'm putting in the extra effort and I'm working hard and the day flies, then I get to go home. Isn't that awesome? So for me, it was always about giving the best I could give. You talked about some of the the leaders that maybe were demotivating, and it sounded like maybe quite often they were female. Do you think or did that change you and the way you approach things at all? I think for me, it showed me what not to do with the people who reported to me. Because I felt really strongly about encouraging everyone to be the best that they could be. And I wanted them to excel, but I also wanted them to be happy in their work. And whenever I would have a new um, person come to work for me, I would have that conversation with them and say, why are you here? What is it you hope to get out of this job? You know, is it for the money? 
you know, is that your motivator? Is it because you want to get promoted and go higher in higher ed? Do you want to travel the country? Because one of the things that I did not decide to do was to take jobs out of state. That was a choice of mine. I wanted to do that. Um, Both my husband and I have family here, and we did not want to be, you know, halfway across the country when something might happen and we wanted to get back. So I would ask those questions. You know, what keeps you here? Because some people feel trapped by it. And if they do, they're not going to give their best effort. And so I would say they, they taught me how not to be a manager. It sounds like it goes back to what you've said a couple times and early on, get to know the people. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, you know, it's okay if somebody approaches something in a different way or with a different perspective. In fact, maybe that's a positive. I think it is. Because I know that my way isn't the right way. It might be for me, but perhaps I'm doing it wrong, or perhaps I'm making it hard on myself because I'm blinded by my desire to do a really good job. And so if somebody comes in with a different perspective and says, hey, um, you know, and especially now with technology, it might be a, hey, did you know that the, you know, if we put this into this program, it'll get the work done in half the time instead of you manually, you know, putting, collating all these pieces of paper and standing at the Xerox machine and getting angry because it's getting stuck and the stapler is not working. It, it, it's a ridiculous example, but it, it goes to show that I came up in a different time. Uh, I, I remember, you know, I was in college typing my my term papers. Okay, with a typewriter, you know, that makes noise. It goes clack clack clack, um, which I know, you know, your kids are like, "What's a typewriter?" Um, but that goes to show that we we talk about our generations before us, and they lived through wars and all this turmoil, and yet we're living through a different kind of turmoil because we're living in technology advances, social media, all the things that are weighing on us that are different than what we had to do in the generation before. So it's it's a learning cycle, and if you don't listen, you're you're going to miss the boat on something that's going to make your life. Uh, more effective, and it's going to make the project much, much easier. So as you mentioned, you've uh, you've had tenure in career and learning and different things. I mean, 34 years in higher education. Um, and some of the stories that you shared, what were some of those challenges and evolutions, whether it's with women or as you've evolved as a female worker leader how has that changed and how have you adapted over those 30 plus years well definitely i adapted in terms of being you know a fresh newbie who didn't know anything to having the the um, respect of people at the university knowing that i worked my way up through the system and so that definitely um, reverent power i guess is what we call that because I know that the last boss I had, there were times where she would say, could you call dot, dot, dot. And it was more of, I had a history with that person. I'd worked with them for years. And there were a lot of people at Webster who grew up into the system, if I could call it that, who were in higher positions, who started when I did. And it's interesting that now that I'm retired and I still get the newsletters, I see it's happening again. It's just the cycle of life at a university that people just continue to grow, motivate, move, 
and some promote up, some promote out, but that's just kind of how it works. So for me, uh, you know, I, I felt myself becoming more confident. I was becoming um, somebody that could command respect, somebody who could walk into a room and make a difference. And so it's interesting to look back at my 20 plus person and who that person was, um, you know, getting excited and buying my first suit when I got my first promotion to, you know, the person I am today who basically got rid of most of my suits because I don't need them anymore. So I guess I would say the evolution is still happening because now I'm growing into the next chapter of my life and who I am today. Which we will definitely get to that. But before we do, because I think a lot of these stories have shown that you've worked hard and advocated for yourself, but how do you get to that point professionally? Or were you just always there? I don't know if I was always there because I, I did not always succeed. Uh, the example kind of I alluded to earlier that I was told I had to take over a project that I did not want to do. And I told my supervisor, I'm sorry, no, I don't want to do it. The response was, I don't care. You have to do it. I need you to do it. And that was one of those moments where I thought, what, what just happened here? What happened to the opportunity to talk this through, to figure things out, to let me be part of the decision? And again, it wasn't, I mean, yeah, it would have been nice if she said, I want you to take this project and I'll give you X amount of money to take it over. It wasn't a, a money motivator. It was a respect or lack of respect that really was bothering to me. And you know, I, I went home and I really was angry because I didn't feel like I was being heard. Again, another lesson that I learned not to do with other people. So I had to, it took a couple weeks. Um, I, I went beyond the three-day snit that we allow ourselves to have. But I finally went into the office and I said, fine, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it well. I'm going to organize the heck out of it so it's not that big a burden to me. Because at the moment, it felt like it was going to be too big. I, I didn't know if I could take on yet another major project and still continue to do the work that was expected of me on a day-to-day -day basis. And I just, I, I turned it around. It was not easy, I admit it. I, it was not a pleasant experience for me or my husband. Uh, but we got through it. And I was able to grow from that because I realized that instead of being angry about it, I should have just looked at the opportunity to get another skill set, another mark on my resume that could help me in the long run. So it comes kind of goes back to, I mean, first of all, not everything's going to be exactly what you want on a silver platter. Mm -mm. And so how do you then approach it? What mindset, what choice do you make and how you do the job? Well, I mean, the, the first choice is you could say, mm -mm, I'm done. Bye. See ya. I quit. But that wasn't a choice for me, because again, I was already moving my way through my career. And the mindset was hard. I, I don't deny that it was a difficult time for me to really turn it around and try and make a positive out of it. And I can't say that every day I was really good at being positive about it. I mean, there were times where it, when you're dealing with other entities beyond your own, whether it's state, federal, military, uh, you get frustrated. And to know that you had to do a lot of work, um, like in my case, I was working on the Department of Defense contract, 
and I had to do all of these this data entry. And at the very end, it said, well, the president has to sign off on it and hit the button. And I was like, well, the president's not going to hit the button. I mean, there are people who hit the button for the president, so to speak. But it was frustrating that the project was done, but I couldn't get the appointment to see the president to push the button until the day before it was due. And it was just mind-boggling to me that that's what we had to do to make it work. Now, it worked. And at the end of the day, I was very relieved and exhausted and tired and then strangely proud of what I did because I got it done. That was going to be my next question. Can you look back at it now and say, I'm glad that happened or I'm, I'm now this extra part of Beth because that happened? Or would you say, if I could do it all over again, wouldn't do it? I'd be like, no, I'm out of here. Um, no, I, I look back at my entire career and I know that there were ups and downs. You know, that's just life. And I would say that I had really great parts of my career at Webster and I had parts that I didn't love so much. But they were all part of that journey. And that journey was ultimately getting to the end where I could say, all right, that work is done. And now I'm going to move on to the next thing. Because for me, Many people say, oh, you, you must be so proud of your career. I was one of those weird people. I'm like, oh, I'm a vice president. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't define myself by the work or the title because it was just me going to work, doing my thing, getting the work done, and then coming home, which I think ultimately, you know, I know, fast forward is why I was able to adapt easier to retirement life because I wasn't so tied into my job and who I was on the job to make that change. Yeah, it sounds like it was less a, an ego need for achievement or what others from the outside would see as achievement and more about pride and mm -hmm. what you put together and then the teams and the people that you built. Well, and I saw people retiring um, or you know, basically feeling like they didn't have a choice you know, it was time, you know, they would close a campus, for example. Mm. So they were out of a job. But there were several of them that could not get past who they were when they worked and their title and how they felt about that title. And I found them struggling. And I stayed in touch with one gentleman for, well, we still touch base from time to time. But he really had a hard time not calling himself you know, regional director or senior regional director. He had a couple different titles. And I kept saying to him, but why is that important to you? I mean, at the end of the day, what are you grateful for? Because if you're grateful for the job because it put food on your table, I get that. But if you're grateful because you had a title, I, I don't know. It It's a mind game that I didn't want to play. And I'm really glad that because I am kind of laid back and organic in my career, um, that I was able to make the transition. So we, I mean, a lot of good shifts and pivots in your career and good people coming in and, and not letting the demotivating ones keep you down. What about mistakes? What about uh, things that, you know, while maybe you would wish you could undo, maybe you learned a lot from? Oh, there were always mistakes um, because you just never knew with the job what was going to happen. Uh, we had 
one um, example of a really good fraud um, case where they got hold of a transcript from another school and the transcript looked really good. But my spidey sense was going off and something was not right. But I was like, well, I guess I'll approve this one. And then about two days later, I get a phone call from the registrar saying, this transcript is is a fraud. It's fake. So this was letting a student into a program at Webster? Right. Based on already having credits or... Right. They had a transcript that said they had a bachelor's degree, and I kept looking at it, and my spidey, you know, my husband says I'm fae, but, um, you know, I just had this weird feeling something wasn't right. But it was one of those days where I was chucking through about 200 applications a day at this point, and I'm like, well, no, there's the seal, there's the signature, it says they have a bachelor's degree, and so I approved it, and we sent the letter, and a few days later, I get the phone call that it's guess what? These transcripts came up on a fraud alert. You approve this. I felt horrible. I mean, I, I had to walk over to the registrar's office and say, I, you know, could you just put the file in front of me and let me look at it again? I, I promise I won't touch it. I won't do anything to it. Because at that point, it was being turned over for a federal investigation. But I just really needed to go see it again. And so, yeah, that was a big mistake. I didn't trust my instincts at that point, And I wish I had. Now, fortunately, not a whole lot happened. Um, it was part of a bigger investigation, and we just got looped into it. But I, I wish I'd listened to my inner self and said, hey, maybe we should raise the alarm on this one. Wow. When you said uh, the federal government getting involved investigation. Oh, yes. That uh, raises it to another level. Mm-hmm. Well, and you never knew what was going to happen. Um, I can't tell you how many times, I, you know, knock, knock, knock. Hey Beth, the FBI is here, and you're like, Oomk. you know, your immediate reaction is, "What did I do?" And a lot of times, because we did have a lot of military students, we had government students, um, they had to get security clearances, and so they would have to come and see me to talk about their status with the university. And you know, the first time was frightening. After that, you kind of become like, "All right, show me your credentials. Let me see your little, you know, your subpoena. What do you want from me?" But, uh, yeah, so there were some interesting things about my job that I never thought I would encounter. <gasps> Who knew higher education uh, could potentially be so exciting? Uh, exactly, exactly. So we, we will, again, still get to the next part of your career. But maybe as you're kind of in that transition, retiring from successful career, starting new things. Mm-hmm. With what you've been through, what you know now, what you're getting ready to do, continue, what advice would you give to the next generation of female leaders? So say my 13-year-old and 11-year-old daughters, or a little bit older, but what would you tell them, what advice to um, get them going in their career further, faster? Well, I... I know your girls, so I know that they have some very distinct plans, which might be a little different from any advice I would give myself. But I think it does go back to, first of all, you know, put in the work. Um, you know, there's a time and a place to call people out on issues. But there's also, it's like, you gotta, you gotta win the battle to win the war is one of the phrases we would use a lot. Like, am I willing to just 
let this slide because ultimately I want to get to the end of this project and I want it to be successful. Uh, oftentimes, I, you know, I see nitpicking or, you know, people would just be negative about another person in the room and you're like, why? Why do you do that? Or um, saying things that are inappropriate. And I'm not saying that there's not a time and a place for it, but there becomes a mob rule if everyone starts just picking on one person, for example. So, um, yeah, I, I think I would just say be a watcher, listen, observe, and jump in when you feel it's appropriate. But I will also say believe in yourself. You, know, you can't let others define who you are because if you do, you may not be successful or you're going to be pushed into a career that you really don't want. And that's when I would say you just need to move forward, you know, find your support network and do the best job that you can do each and every day. Wow, those are some good things. Definitely things I've struggled with letting others maybe define you or what you should or shouldn't value or stand up for. I think in my older age, I finally realized I've always been built or directed by these core values in life mm -hmm. and taking the time to say what really are those and then realizing that any time I was unsuccessful or unhappy was when the environment was not aligned with my core values. Well, and definitely fight for yourself because yes, you're right. There are times where something is not right. And I guess that's what was so frustrating about my earlier example. I fought for myself. I said, no, I don't want to do this. This is not who I am. And I think that I was so shocked when I was told, no, I'm sorry, I don't care. You have to do this. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, that one threw me off because I thought I finally reached that point in my career where I could you know, advocate for myself, really apply my strengths and, and really get the meaty projects that I was hoping to work on. And it, it, it really stymied me because I, I really didn't know what to do with that particular situation. And again, it took me quite a while to kind of get over it, get readjusted re and get my mindset right. But uh, yeah, so. It's kind of like, don't be a doormat, but also don't be a bull in a china shop. Mm -hmm. Know when yeah. you have to modulate. Yeah, and, and be yourself. I mean, that's the other thing. I, I always felt that I was told to be a certain way, to act a certain way, to dress a certain way, but I couldn't be myself all the time. And when I was myself, I was happier. Um, you know, I may have been in a suit acting like a goof at a particular meeting, um, you know, getting up and doing like a little skit or something. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. Um, it allowed me to be free for a minute to remind myself who I am in that place. Like you said, it's it's being yourself, but being smart about it. So and I tell my kids all the time, you know, when I'm coaching soccer, I'm on the soccer field, I'm not wearing a suit. Um, and I may have, you know, my hair up, or I may talk in more uh, loose language. But when I'm at the office or in a professional setting, I'm still me. But it's it's a very aware me in the setting that I'm in. Yeah, I think. Um, so we kept skirting around everything you did and oh we'll get to what you're doing now oh we'll get what to what you transitioned but i mean really a couple of things there's one that you've been doing all along which is rotary 
And there's also the starting and, and running with your support network husband, Carondelet Kitchen. So transitioning to those, can you talk about either of those? Because I believe Rotary's played an important part in your life. Yeah, Rotary is uh, 20 years now. It is probably one of the few things I took from Webster when I left. I decided to keep my membership going because I was a past president. I am very, very engaged with the club. So right now I'm currently a vice president, and I'm also chair of the program committee. And what that means is every week I have to get a speaker. Yes, I said every week. So um, we're doing about 48 programs a year because we do have some breaks for the holidays. So you never know who you're talking to. And that's when I, 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 I if you want me to reflect back and say, what gave me, um, you know, what did I bring from Webster? It certainly gave me the confidence to just either cold call a CEO. I don't care. I'll call their gatekeeper. Um, but I'm also very happy to walk up and say, hi, I'm Beth Russell. How are you? I'm so delighted you're here with us today. Tell me about yourself. Because at the end, once you get past the gatekeeper, they have kids, they have dogs, they have homes, they have lives, they go on vacation. They're just like you and me. It's just they have a title. And it seems scary. And that's what I always tell the young people who are thinking about joining Rotary. I said, you have an opportunity to come every single week, and maybe you'll talk to Bill DeWitt from the Cardinals, or Chris Zimmerman from the Blues, or Marilyn Bush from Bank of America. You don't know who's going to be there. And so you get this opportunity to not only hear from them one-on-one, but afterward, they usually allow people to come up and have a private talk with them. And it's just an opportunity to network with people that you would never be around on a day-to-day basis. And so, yeah, Rotary, um, it's its um, service above self. We do a lot of good works. Our club tends to be more philanthropic, but we now have a satellite club uh, called the Civilians, and they do more of the projects. So they'll clean up parks or clean up highways or do um, bike rides, things that would help us elevate our our sense of who we are as Rotarians. And what about uh, Carondelet Kitchen? Well, Carondelet, what is it? First? Yeah, Carondelet Kitchen, um, it, it came out of my one-year intermission. When I retired, I said, I am not doing anything. I want to watch all the movies I want to watch. I want to read all the books I want to read. I'm going to walk my dog. But there was always this idea in the back of my head, because I love cooking. Uh, we were at this point, I, you know, my mom had passed, so we were going through old cookbooks of hers, my grandma's, and I kept trying to think of the legacy of how do I pass all this information on. So my big guy said, hey, what about a cookbook? And I said, okay, um, that sounds intriguing. How do I start that? So then we started talking about a blog. And I don't know, am I stealing it from Julia and Julia? I don't know, but I'm not going to cook the entire Julia child cookbook, so fear not, you're not going to get an aspect out of me. Um, but we decided that maybe what I needed to do was just write about food, write about the recipes that I'm discovering. How do I take traditional recipes and make them my own? Uh, I, I'm getting ready to tackle my dad's bourbon fruitcake. I hate fruitcake, but it's something he made every year. But I want to try and figure out how to make it and make it my own. And we've done that with the family, what we call a meat pie. It's a French pie with pork and hamburger. It doesn't look really pretty because the tradition was to boil the meat. 
I, on the other hand, will not boil the meat. I'm going to cook it and I'm going to saute it and kind of brown it up and, and make it you know, something appetizing that I think will be good and that tastes similar and still honors the tradition. So that's kind of how Crondelet Kitchen started. We were thinking about a name. I kept thinking, you know, my grandma's recipes or, you know, um, cooking with grandma. I, I don't know. I was coming up with really horrible ideas. And um, one night, uh, I know, ironically, during a happy hour, uh, Doug and I were talking and he's like, you know what? We live in Crondelet. You should write about our Crondelet Kitchen. And it just, it stuck. That's how it started. We've been doing um, this. I've written over 450 blogs, I believe, at this point, because we've been doing it over a year and a half now. And every day I just write about something. Um, It may be about what meal I made. It might be about where I went to visit. So um, a little preview. We, We discovered a new neighborhood market. It's not new. It's old, obviously. New to us. Um, so cool. I, I'm calling it the candy store for carnivores because they have a real butcher. It, it's just exciting to think that if I decide I'm going to make something exotic like, well, Steak Diane, I could go in and go, I need this cut of meat, and the butcher's going to know what I'm talking about. So that's been kind of fun. And then just kind of going out and rediscovering St. Louis because that has – kind of become the spin too because it's not just about the food it's stories from my kitchen and what we're doing in our retired life and how we're going about it and then uh, January of this year uh, the big guy decided he was going to start Crondelet Garden because he wanted a garden in the backyard so we're actually we've got these dual uh, blogs going on where I'm, I'm talking about the kitchen he's talking about the garden so we've been having fun with it, and it's been interesting. We we have been contacted by people who are like, do you want to set up a booth? Are you selling your goods? And we're like, no, we're doing this for fun, for our family and friends. Uh, we've been uh, contacted by uh, a large radio program who wanted to interview me about potentially what we were doing. And uh, then, of course, we were asked whether or not we wanted to teach. And so it's been very, very exciting to not only do some things that I always love to do, you know, take pictures, write blogs, um, getting back to some of those things that I did as a kid that I really loved, but then also getting to know people who are out in these communities. The maker community is huge in St. Louis, and getting to know all of these people who are making things and selling things, but to be able to pump them up and be positive about them, because it goes back to that positivity I mentioned earlier. When we started this, both Doug and I said, we are not going to be negative. So if we have a bad experience, we're not going to talk about it. We have a great experience, we're going to tell everybody. And that has been our philosophy that we want to start promoting what's good in St. Louis because we're tired about hearing what's not good in St. Louis. Yeah, I think and several things that you just said about this was, it sounds like, again, you're going back to one of your passions and you're pouring into a passion. You're getting to know people things around you, you're pouring into them, sensing some themes here in your life, which, you know, as you've made the transition and and you're doing new fun things for the purpose of just fun, what, if anything, could you share with others about how how to get the most out of life, enjoy life, live their life? Well, I watched an interview with Anna Garten last night, and she said, well, if you're not having fun, what's the point? And I, I was struck by that comment because 
life really should be about fun. And it shouldn't always be about drama. I mean, we know it's, it's life, it goes up and down. But if you keep a positive mindset, it tends to come back to you as a positive mindset. And so that's really kind of what we wanted to do. Um, now, I, I will, again, not sugarcoat it when I first retired. Yeah, I went through the seven stages of grief or whatever they talk about when you retire. Um, I, I kind of skipped through a lot of them. It really wasn't that traumatic for me. But I did find myself constantly looking at my phone. I did find myself checking my email. I kept checking my work email because I'm emeritus. I still get email from my past employer. And part of that, again, had to go to the I wanted to be that person who did the good job, who always followed up, who made sure that I didn't just walk away and say, no longer my problem. I wanted that transition to be smooth. And so I think that's where I'm at transitioning into this part of my life. And that is just saying, be kind to yourself. You know, make sure that you do give yourself some some time to do the things you love to do, but also get out there, talk to other people, you know, spend time with your family and friends, because this life is going to go so fast, and you know, I really don't want to leave this earth and have people say, oh, she was such a stick in the mud. That's not what I want to be. I want people to feel like I lived a good life that I'm active, that I'm healthy and happy, and that I am lifting people up as I encounter them in my life. It's funny, as you were talking, I thought about two things. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've, I've realized the more, I think for whatever reason over time, I just thought I'm not important. What I think, feel, say, whatever isn't important, and maybe building up a wall to protect myself from any thoughts that others might well why is she that i just won't say anything but as soon as i take the chance and get out there and meet more people and just put myself in the situation i almost always come away with something great and i post more about it again back to the positivity on facebook and things so much so that my sister-in-law in kansas city once wrote back she calls it wwcd what would cynthia do and i saw the reminder the other day where she's like i didn't want to go to this thing i you know but i did and i talked to people and i actually won the contest of a new t-shirt and, da, 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 and i wouldn't have i wouldn't have had that joy had i just not put myself out there and, and done it and that also brings me back to something else i thought about recently was what's your imprint on life and those around you so i think that goes back to what you're saying is get to know them be positive try to lift them up you know, what What imprint are you leaving when you walk away? Well, and are you concerned about that imprint? You know, um, I read an article, Alan Alda said, you know, people are going to say what they're going to say about my legacy, but I'm not going to worry about it because I want to just live my best life. And, you know, unfortunately, we're losing a lot of the older actors. And there was another article with Angela Lansbury who said, well, I know when I die, they're going to say that I was Jessica Fletcher on Murder, She Wrote. That's going to be the definition of what I am. And then when you look at her entire career, you go, wow, I mean, really? that That's how you circle up someone's life. And you see it too often in magazines. And so you know, I admit, there's been a couple times, like you say, you know, what will my my life story be? I hope somebody can see that I was much more interesting than giving, you know, 34 years of my life to one 
tech organization, which is not a normal thing today. And I hope that people will know that I was loved and that I gave love, and I tried to live the best life that I was given. Wow. I wanted to come back and say some other things like, what's your last word? How do we circle this back up? But I think that last sentence did so much. However, you had so many great tidbits and and things today. I, I like you know, your theory of I was the second choice, which I think surmises also a lot of things that you've been through and have done just keep working hard, um, put the time in the work in, help others shine, get to know others, motivate them, um, you know, think outside the box, advocate for yourself. Good Lord, I have so many things uh, underlined here. Uh, you know, adapt, show up, I don't even know. But, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, that I think it's a Garth Brooks song, Unanswered Prayers, that second choice. Sometimes it's about deciding, even if you don't get what you want, keep pouring into it, keep working hard, uh, be gracious about it. And that may set you apart for something bigger than you could have even expected. But again, do it all with love and light. Um, anything else? Well, make sure you count your blessings. Because in today's world, it's too easy to say, oh, dang, my car broke down. Okay, that's a first world problem. Um, or my computer locked up. Again, a first world problem. So I think at the end of the day, you have to sit down and say, do I have a home? You know, Do I have a roof over my head? Do I have a dog who is just a doodle and you know gives unconditional love do i have a life partner that i can love and have fun with every single day and once you start doing a gratitude list you suddenly realize that those little problems are are little they are just annoyances and you got to let them go just sit down and remember all that's good and remember that you can go out into the world and maybe affect someone else's life and be part of their gratitude list. Yeah, you never know what smile, what compliment um, could change that person's life from whatever they're going through. Um, so again, I think it goes back to put yourself out there in a positive way with good love, light intent. And even if you only change one person's life, um, that's better than a lot. Uh, can say or do so get out there and leave those good impressions before we fully sign off carondelet kitchen we're not going to give away the recipe of the blog <laughs> of the place because we want people to to find it and tune in but where can they find carondelet kitchen carondelet kitchen is a website instagram and twitter and we have cardinal uh, we have carondelet garden we have Crondelet Garden. We also have St. Louis Psalm, but that one uh, we've kind of tied into the kitchen now. And uh, who knows? Maybe I'll be doing a you know podcast soon, too. You never know. So uh, with us, we're just out there having a good time. And as long as we're enjoying it, we'll keep it going because it is a passion project. And if we decide something else gets our attention, you never know. We'll pivot, adjust, and adapt wonderful way to end so i appreciate you coming on and sharing so much good advice sharing your stories uh being open and vulnerable and i know i've gotten a lot out of this and those who listen will certainly find something they can take away so thank you dr b 
Thank you. My pleasure. This concludes another episode of the She Lift Project podcast. To hear more episodes of the show, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about our mission of helping women reach higher levels of success, visit sheliftproject.com and sign up to receive the latest news, ebooks, videos, and more.